you bow with me once again? Father, we come to you now in the study of your word. We are so grateful that we have this privilege to be able to study together. We would ask, Lord, that you would superintend our time, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to all that you would have for us today, that we would understand it, that we would live according to it, that it would challenge us and encourage us, and for some of us even cause us to to come to know you in a real way. So Lord, we thank you for each one here. Bless us now as we study your word in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them together to Romans chapter 8, verses Five or verses five through fourteen, Romans chapter eight and verses five through fourteen. What a wonderful truth for each and every Christian to actually know, without a shadow of a doubt, that right now and forever there is no condemnation from God upon you. What a wonderful thought that is! What a wonderful reality that is for us as Christians to to know and to realize that without any doubt at all, right now and forever, there is no condemnation from God. There's no greater security than that. There is no greater anchor of hope for us as Christians than that. There is no greater motivator for living in the here and now, in in our life here on this earth right now, than to be fully assured of our soul's security before God. The Scriptures tell us that we are not to fear the one who can remove the body, but we are to fear only the one who can throw both soul and body into hell. The reality is no condemnation is a fearless place. To understand no condemnation before God is to be standing in the fearless place. And that is the declaration that the Apostle Paul has made and that we have heard here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And by the grace of God, we are given proofs of its validity, proofs of its reality throughout the rest of this chapter. And in giving these proofs to us, we are answering the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? I think this is an important question for us to be asking and for us to have answered because people often use the term Christian to describe all kinds of people. Some of use it as a category for describing somebody's cultural or religious or family heritage, some kind of idea in which there is some sense of, of uh, God ideas and God thoughts in their life. They grew up that way. Their culture's that way. Their heritage is somewhat that way. And so they describe themselves as Christian. Others believe that a person is a Christian because he or she attends church. 
Maybe some sitting here have thought that. I, I go to that church. I've attached myself to that place. And so I'm a Christian. Or, or maybe it's because you're raised in a home that claims Christianity. I always find it interesting. We even attach the word Christian to movies and schools. I've never seen a school become a Christian. Never seen a movie become a Christian. And yet we call it Christian movies and Christian schools. Still others use the term, just one of those boxes you might fill out on an application somewhere. What's your status? Well, I'm a Christian. Years ago, my wife was asked about me, what religion is he? When Before we got married, and the answer she gave was, he's a Christian. And the person said to her, well, everybody's a Christian. What religion is he? And that's the idea. So it's an important question for us to know the answer to, not just so that we can explain it to others, but more importantly, so that we can even evaluate our own lives. If the Christian is in the position of not being condemned, then how is that the case and what is the Christian in practice? What is the Christian in practice? Over the past few weeks, we have been hearing from the Apostle Paul proofs of this position of no condemnation. And those proofs are giving us a definition of what a Christian is. It's not really that Paul has set out to define what a Christian is, but, but by default in some kind of way, what we are seeing as these proofs of being in this position of no condemnation is giving us a definition of what a Christian is. And the first proof that we heard was that a Christian is not under condemnation because they are actually united with Jesus Christ. In other words, why can they claim and why is it a secure place to be in this no condemnation zone, if you will? Because you are actually united with Jesus Christ. That proves that you cannot be condemned. And we have seen this in many ways throughout our study, and so I won't belabor the point. But simply to say that when the Bible tells us that We are in Christ, as we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, and you heard that term over and over and over and over again, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. When the Bible says we are in Christ, it means that whatever took place with Christ has happened to us in the eyes of God. That's really the idea on a simple term or a simple definition of unity with Jesus Christ. Whatever happened with Christ has happened to us in the eyes of God. So when he died to sin, we died to sin. When he was buried because of death, we also were buried because of his death in him. When he was raised to new life, so too were we raised to new life, and therefore we are free from the law of sin and death, verse 2 says. We are free from it. So we have concluded that our unity with Jesus Christ is a now and forever reality, and therefore our position of no condemnation is an absolute reality. To say it another way, the first proof of our not being 
condemned as a Christian is because we are actually united with Christ. It is a vital, actual, real unity with Jesus Christ. We could say it this way. Since we are justified, we will never be condemned. Since we are justified, we will never be condemned. And so we concluded, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? They are those who are united with Christ. It is not somebody who just attends to a place. It is not a school. It is not a, it is not a movie. It is not somebody who grew up in a cultural, religious kind of environment. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is united with Jesus Christ. If there is no uniting with Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. And so we come to the second, then, proof that is here in this text. There is now no condemnation for the Christian because the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. There is no condemnation for the Christian because they are united with Christ, and there is no condemnation for the Christian, secondly, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. This is a very important proof for us to realize and to understand. We began to look at it last Lord's Day in verses 5 and following, and we looked at it from the negative side. We looked at it from the side of the non-Christian, or what is a non-Christian? From the side from which the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled. And we derived that from verses 3 and 4, because what the law could not do for any person, the law cannot Declare someone justified when they break the law. The law has only one option when you break the law of God, and that is condemnation. So the law could not do that because of the sin, because it was weak through the flesh. It could not take a sinful person and declare them righteous. And so God did what the law could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh or in the likeness of you and me, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And we said the requirement of the law was twofold. It was on one side, perfect obedience, and on the other side, condemnation. Christ fulfilled it all. And so therefore, it is fulfilled in us. And it is not fulfilled for the unchristian or the non-christian because verse 4 clearly says it's fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit so for those who are actually united with jesus christ or for the christian that means that the requirement of the law is actually fulfilled in us It is not theory, it is not potential, it is not something that will be fulfilled in the future. It is fulfilled, it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, is fulfilled in us because we are united with Jesus Christ. And we must realize and we must understand in this that the reality has an effect upon us right here and right now. In other words, it isn't fire insurance for the future and only that. It has a effect. It is not a static statement that carries no effect. The person who claims to be a Christian but has no life change 
that shows up in their life direction, things that are after God, is not a Christian. They're not a Christian. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And it is shown clearly to us in verses 5 through 8. So a non-Christian, beloved, is a person whose life is habitually dominated by the things of the flesh. We saw that last time. Because in verses 5 through 8, they are dominated by the things of the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh habitually. And the mind that is habitually on those things proves that it is in a position of spiritual death. That's what it says in verse 6. The mind set on the flesh is death. And therefore, they are hostile toward God and completely unable to obey God at all. And so right here is a succinct way we have a definition of total depravity right there. You want a definition of total depravity of man? It is one who sets their mind on the flesh and their mind set on the flesh means they're dead. And because their mind is set on the flesh, they're hostile toward God. They're not subject to the law of God. They're not even able to do so. They cannot in any way please God. That's total depravity. In other words, without the sovereign drawing of God, of sinful man to himself, man never wants to come to God. In fact, According to those verses, he is completely unable to want God because he is spiritually dead. But the complete opposite is true for those who are in Christ. For the Christian, for those who are in the position of no condemnation, for those who are in the position by which the requirement of the law has been fulfilled, their lives have been completely changed. Just like going from physical death to physical life, there is a complete and utter change. So too spiritually, from spiritual death to spiritual life, a complete and utter change. And we need to notice the contrast. We need to notice it here. Because first, notice, the Christian walks according to the Spirit. You see that in verse 4. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He's talking about those who are under no condemnation. So the Christian, that it might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but there's the contrast, according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? We saw what it means to walk according to the flesh, and Paul is using similar language here for those who are in no condemnation zone. It means to carry out life, to, to be habitually dominated by, to, to uh, in the words of Paul, to have your mind set on the things of the Spirit. In other words, to be constantly mindful and constantly directed by that which is spiritual. To be mindful and directed by that which is spiritual. And so at the very least, at the very least, at the very beginning, we can conclude that a Christian is someone who is controlled and directed by the Holy Spirit. 
They're controlled and directed by the Holy Spirit. So, if that is not true of a person, then they are not a Christian. They are not united with Christ. They are not under the position of no condemnation. They do not have the Spirit in them. In fact, notice verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. It can't be any clearer than that. So let's just listen again to how this is stated for us here in verses 5 through 8. Notice what he says. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but, here's the contrast, those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And verses 6 and 7 and 8 delineate the reality of the mind that's set on the flesh. It's, it's, it's death. It's hostile. It's not subject to the law of God. It can't do that. It cannot please God. But the mindset on the Spirit, verse 6, is life and peace. It is not death. It is life. It is not hostility. It is peace with God. It is not not subject to what God says. It subjects itself to what God says. In fact, it is able to do that because that's what the Spirit desires. And in doing that, there is a pleasing of God. Do you see? It's a total contrast. Then Paul goes on in verses 9 through 14, and he, he kind of encapsulates even more this idea. However, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's, he's saying, I know this about you. To those whom I'm writing, I know this about you. You're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's, he doesn't belong to him. If Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. You are alive with Christ, right? We have the spirit of life, verse 2, in Christ Jesus has set you free. How did he set you free? He made you alive. He made you alive. You have been risen with Christ. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, he's not necessarily talking about life to your mortal body in the sense of when you physically die, then you'll be raised to new life. That's true, but that's not really what Paul's dealing with here. Paul's talking about life in your practice, life in what you do. You no longer do the dead things of the world, the fleshy stuff. You now do what honors God, what, what would... Bring God honor, the things of the Spirit, because the Spirit indwells you. That's why he says in verse 12, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to it, but if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if the Spirit, you're putting to death those deeds, you'll live. He's saying that proves your eternal life, see? You're a Christian. And so, therefore, the person who is controlled by the Spirit has his mind set on spiritual things. And that means, as we learned last time, by mind, he means all of it. 
He doesn't just mean his thinking. He means all of his faculties, the whole person, his emotions, his thinking, his will, his desires, all the faculties of our being. All of those things. The Christian uses each and every one of those every day, and they are directed, they are spirit-directed. That's what he's saying. Whereas before... As non-Christians, the things of God were foolishness to us, 1 Corinthians 2. They were foolishness to us. When someone said, believe in God, we said, well, that's ridiculous. Someone said, Jesus is the way? Yeah, right. That was us before. But now, as a Christian, the things of God are not foolishness to us. They're not ridiculous. So there's an implication there that we have to realize. The implication is that to ignore the things of the Spirit is to say by way of our actions that they are foolishness. To ignore the things of the Spirit is to say by way of our actions that those things are foolishness, which is to say that God is foolish. And so if the things of God are not foolish to the Christian then we as Christians ought to be living according to them, shouldn't we? The things of God are to be the Christian's greatest interest and desire. The things of God are to be our greatest desire and interest. I say that because oftentimes we get in our minds wrong thinking that God, that God's things are to be our duty only. I'm making a very important distinction here. Sometimes we get this idea that as long as I'm doing these Christian duties, I'm heading in the right way on the right path. And yet here we find that the things of the Spirit are for the Christian not simply duty. They're not simply task. They're not simply things that must be done, but rather things of the Spirit are our earnest and habitual pursuit of life. There's an internal reality to this as much as there's an external fruit in it. They are our walk. They are our life. And so when we think about that, our minds initially gravitate to what are then the things of the Spirit? And we ask that, okay, so if it's that, then what are those things, right? We're, we're just like the, Pharisee, the lawyer who came to Jesus in Luke and said, okay, then tell me who my neighbor is. All right, define it down to me so I can put it in a box and so that as long as I make sure I'm doing that, I can salve my conscience and be right. And we do that with our own Christian activity. Well, let me submit to us today that the things of the Spirit are the things of God. The things of God. In other words, the Spirit of God always draws attention to the things of God. In other words, we can contrast it with the things of the flesh. And so at the very outset, by way of contrast, again, we know that the mindset on the Spirit is not hostile to God. The mindset on the Spirit is not hostile to God. It's the direct opposite of the mindset on the flesh. 
and that it subjects itself to the law of God, right? If the mindset on the flesh is not at peace with God, is hostile to God, and is not subject to the law of God, then the mindset on the spirit is just the opposite. So, in other words, the Christian is a person who has been awakened by the Spirit of God to the things of God. Do you realize that? When God saved you, you were now indwelt by His Spirit that awakened you to the things of God that before you thought were just absolute ridiculousness. Whereas before the things were foolishness to you, now they are your delight and your pursuit. And so, what is that pursuit? What are those delights? Well, first and foremost, the Christian has a real concern for their relationship with God. You want to know what the Spirit's after? The Spirit's after the things of God. And the Christian's first and foremost pursuit and delight is their relationship with God. When I say that it is our relationship with God... We are not necessarily to be thinking how much Bible we might know. We're not necessarily to be thinking when I say that what kind of person I may be in the varied relationships that I have. But rather, we need to be thinking that our primary concern as Christians is not the external things, but rather the relationship internally between us and God. That's the primary concern. How is my relationship with God personally? Not how much Bible do I read a day, not how much do I spend in relationships with other Christians and all those other kinds of things that are all great things and needful things and things we ought to be engaging ourselves in, but the primary concern for us is how is my relationship personally with God today, right now, this moment? Each and every day and each and every moment, we as Christians, And maybe this is a good definition to help us. The person who is a Christian wants their relationship with God to be right all the time. That's their primary concern. But when we sin as Christians, because we have such a primary concern for our relationship toward God, we seek forgiveness for those sins with the people we've sinned against and before God himself. When we pray, we seek to pray for and submit to the will of God in all the circumstances of life in which we have concerns and are bringing our concerns before God in petition. When we give as Christians, we give with the knowledge that everything that we have, everything that is ours is a gift from God and that it is God that provides everything we need. And so we hold those things with open hands. It means that Matthew 6.33 
seek first his kingdom and his righteousness is more than just words. It's actually our life. It's actually our pursuit. It actually is a reality for us. So the Christian's chief desire then is his relationship with God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said his chief reality is his soul. I like that. I like how he said it. It's his soul. He's concerned for his soul. His desire is to know God and to know what God requires of him most of all in that relationship. In a word, in a word, we can even say this, just to tighten the screw a little tighter. If everything else in our life is not less in our eyes than our relationship with God, if that isn't the direction of our life, not the perfection of our life, but the direction of our life habitually, then we ought to ask ourselves some very hard questions about our perfection. We are reminded of the words in Luke chapter 14, Jesus speaking to those who were following him. And he said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saying that's the prerequisite to come, and therefore when that happens, then you can be my disciple. He's saying your love for Christ has to look in such a way that every other kind of love seems as if you hate those things. Let's make no mistake about it. The mindset on the Spirit is devoted to the things of God. Devoted to the things of God. So... Do you have that great concern in your relationship with God? That's the question. That's the evaluatory question for us. Do you have that great concern in your relationship between you and God? Do the things of God rank higher than everything and everyone else? Internally. Now, that can be a tough evaluation. But for some, it may be a life-saving evaluation. Praise God that that's the case. Because we would hate to think that we are saved when we're not. We would hate to think that we are truly a Christian when our life shows no reflection of it. And praise God, even as a true Christian, the evaluation is difficult for us to look at. Thank God that He does not simply leave us there. But that the work of the Spirit in us takes us to the place of glorifying Christ. That's the second thing that a Christian is really mindful of. Their relationship with God and the reality in that is that Christ receives all the glory. Why do I say that? Because that is the chief goal of the Spirit. The chief goal of the Spirit is not to do what He wants to do, but as Jesus says in John 14 through 16, He's coming. He's going to 
speak the will of the Father. He's going to do what the Father desires. He's not going to do what He wants. He's only going to tell you what the Father wants. And the Father always desires to highlight the Son. Glorify the Son. That's the chief goal of the Spirit. And so the Christian glories in the glory of Christ. That's our glory. That's what we're to do. Glory in Christ. In other words, a Christian has no care for their own glory in anything. There's no sense on this earth where I should receive any kind of glory from anything because I deserve nothing. Anything and everything is a glory to Christ. For those who walk according to the Spirit glory in the glory of Christ. The Spirit of Christ who indwells us only desires to do in us that which will glorify Christ. For those who walk according to the Spirit, glory in that. Those who walk according to the Spirit subject themselves to the law of God. Why? Because it glorifies Christ. And because we're able to do that. They're able to do that for the glory of Jesus Christ. Remember what Galatians 5 says? What is the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Guess what those are? Those are attitudinal and internal. Love, joy, peace. Attitudinal and internal. Fruit of the Spirit. And then it says patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know what those are? Attitudinal and external. Internal drives the external. All driven by the Spirit. So there's a complete change in the Christian. There's an internal change. There's an external change. All to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, as I was putting down my notes for our time this morning, I thought, boy, these are some hard things to hear. This is hard for us as Christians to hear, and I don't want to overly discourage any true Christian today because we tend to go in our hearts to the place where in which we know that we are not perfect in any of this, right? And we're sitting there evaluating ourselves, thinking about this and going, man, that's, that's a bar that's way higher than my head even seems to float five feet under the water. Because we can easily think that because we fail, therefore we must not be saved. But I want us to notice and be encouraged that Paul is not describing perfection here. He is describing direction. He is describing pursuit. And there is a monumental difference between those who are dead spiritually and those who are alive. There's a monumental difference. Notice verses 6 through 9 again. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. That's the demarcation line. The demarcation line is not perfection. The demarcation line is pursuit, and that pursuit is driven by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The demarcation line is between whether you have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit, not in being perfect or not. Whether you're alive or whether you're dead, the non-Christian has no interest in the things of God. None. Zero. No interest in the things of God. No interest in the Spirit-driven things of God. They are dead. You say, but some people seem to have interest in the things of God, not the God of the Scriptures. Because the God of the Scriptures cannot be separated from Jesus Christ. And the Spirit only highlights Jesus Christ. So if they're worshiping a God that is devoid of Jesus Christ in the definition that God gives for Jesus Christ, which is every other religion than true Christianity according to the Scriptures, then they are worshiping a God of their own making. It is not God. And so the non-Christian has no interest in the things of God. Certainly they have all kinds of interest in the God of their own making because that God seems to be appeased by them. That God seems to soften the conscience and the blow and the guilt they feel because they've salved it with all of this foolish outward activity. But it's not the God of the Bible. In fact, they cannot please the God of the Bible. They're dead. But you as a Christian have an interest in the things of God. Oh, certainly you're not perfect. Oh, certainly in activity you're not perfect in every kind of way and all of the things that God has asked for you to do and commanded for you to do and you fail all the time. But the fact of the matter is you have an interest in the things of God. Why? Because you're alive. Because you're alive. Let's make the demarcation line there and only there. The Christian is in no way a perfect person in action, even though they are righteous in standing before God spiritually. But the Christian is alive. They're alive. And therefore, they have an ongoing interest in the things of God. Things of God affect them. They affect them. They please the Christian. They rouse us spiritually. The things of God do nothing for the non-Christian. You can say to a non-Christian who goes to some kind of church that says they worship God, and you can say Jesus Christ is the only way, and they get angry at that. That's not an interest in God. You can say to a sinning Christian who is out sinning, listen, God doesn't want that and their conscience is pricked by that reality and they cannot escape it. Why? Because they're alive. You see, that's the difference. The non-Christian cannot be interested. Why? Because they're dead. They hate God. But the Christian can be and the Christian is interested in the things of God. Why? Because they're alive and they love God. Sadly, sadly, we as Christians disobey the things of God, don't we? That's one of the tragedies of 
from the strength of the flesh, we still sin. But because we have the Spirit in us, we are concerned about that. We are concerned about our relationship with God, and so we confess our sins. And we walk according to the Spirit. The opposite is not true, or that is not true for the Christ- or for the non-Christian. The non-Christian cannot obey God ever. They are always disobedient and have no interest in confession. Why? They are dead to spiritual things. And confession is a work of the Spirit. Do you know why you repented of your sins to believe God? Because God granted you that. God made that happen. You didn't one day wake up and go, hey, man, these things start to make sense to me. You know, if that happened, God opened your eyes. The Spirit quickened you to life. You turned from your sin to God. So Paul could say in verses 10 and 11, if Christ is in you, even though your body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive. Why? Because of righteousness. Not yours, Christ's righteousness. That's a statement of fact, beloved. That's not a potential. That's not a maybe. That's not a boy if I'm good enough. That's a statement of fact. You are not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Only those who do not have the Spirit of Christ are the non-Christian. And therefore, since you are in Christ, since Christ is in you, then you are alive, even though you are physically in this transitional place. You ever think of your life like that? You're alive. Guess what, folks? Your resurrection isn't something to come. It has happened in Christ. It is that sure. You are alive. One day we will shed this outer garment and we will be uh, assumed into glory just as Christ is. But right now we have this flesh we deal with. And even though we are here, we battle the physical outworkings of the deeds of the flesh constantly, even though the body is dead because of sin. You're not dead. You're not dead. You're alive. And since you're alive internally, you can have victory over the external. You can have victory in your life practice. And you can be assured that you are not condemned because you have the Spirit in you. Not only does it give you life now, but He will give you continued life later. So what's a Christian? What's a Christian? A Christian is a person who is in Christ and who has the Spirit of Christ in them. And that Spirit changes them completely. Well, I hope that's encouraging. 
faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'm thankful for a friend like Paul who won't just say, hey, listen, it's okay. Go on living any way you want. You can do what you want. Go ahead and claim Jesus no matter what. No, I'm thankful for a friend like Paul who says, listen, here's what a Christian is. Here's what a Christian is. Now look at your life. Look at your life. Well, let's pray. We'll get more next time. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for this look at what it means to be in the Spirit. We are in Christ and we are to walk according to the Spirit. Submitting ourselves to what your Word says, even when our flesh doesn't want to. Our flesh fights against that at every realm. But you have empowered us by your Spirit to do what is right, to submit to those things that are right and honoring to you. Lord, may that be the primary purpose of our life and pursue the desire that our relationship with you be right. For when it's right with you, we then pursue with others exactly how you would have us. Thank you for the transforming grace of the gospel for how it has changed us from life, from death to life, from condemnation to no condemnation, from being without the Spirit to having the Spirit, from being hostile to You to being a, a, at peace with You. Lord, we thank You for what You have done. Use it now in our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.